dream the impossible dream to fight the unbeatable foe to bear with unbearable sorrow to run where the brave dare not go. Hello and welcome to Carefully Taught Teaching Musical Theater with Maddie and Kikau, a podcast to discuss musical theater education and to create a community of sharing amongst musical theater educators. We have a very, very special episode today. Uh, it's just me. I'm flying solo. No key cow. This is Maddie, in case you don't recognize my voice, though it's not nearly as luscious as a bear of a baritone as key cows. Um, it's a first, our first ever one-on-one -on -one conversation, and we're going to talk about some pretty cool and some pretty important stuff. Um, it's it, it's a special podcast for a variety of reasons. First off, my guest today has something like 11 Broadway credits, uh, probably most known for uh, The Light in the Piazza, to which he was part of the film stage version. He also starred opposite uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones and Angela Lansbury in the Broadway revival of A Little Night Music. Um, you might have seen him in Mamma Mia, Les Mis, Fan of the Opera, Oklahoma. There's like so many different things. Stings, The Last Ship. Um, also, he uh, is a star of screen, too, working with Academy Award-winning directors like Martin Scorsese and Clint Eastwood. You probably saw him with uh, Hot Dog Fingers in the reigning Academy Award-winning Best Picture, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. But none of that is why it is such a special occasion to have him on our podcast because it's special because he's quite literally one of my favorite human beings in the entire world, one of my oldest and dearest friends, the kind of friend that I quite literally think about on a daily basis and send him love and my 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 positivity. Uh, if you haven't guessed it by now, our guest today, our for one on one conversation is none other than Broadway's Aaron Lazar. Aaron, welcome to Carefully Taught teaching musical theater with Maddie and Kikau. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. There you go. Yeah. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. Is that, is that the, is That's that where? Yes, that is the reference. Yes. And we might pull that audio and start using it now for our intro because uh, that was pretty cool. Um, you know, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about. The state of the musical hold theater. On. Hold on, please, please. What, what, what? First of all, I'm very grateful to be here. I'm very happy to be here. Everyone needs to know that as much as you gave me such a beautiful introduction that I return the love times 100 because we go way back. Um, and I'd like to say that it's because we spent a couple of years together in Cincinnati where I was getting my graduate degree and you were getting your undergraduate degree. And I'd like to say that it's because I I've been to see you in shows that you've done and visited your amazing school, that the program that you run, or you've come to see me in shows and traveled around over the years. I'd like to say it's because we um, we love and support each other and our families that we've 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 built as artists, which is tough to do, um, even when you're not an artist, let alone when you're an artist. But really, um, I think it's just because. Uh, 
because we played a lot of video games in your shitty apartment. Um, and uh, and I miss that a shitty apartment. It was a nice little apartment. What are you talking about? I, there's something about it. I'm, maybe I'm misremembering, but I remember either. I mean, look, we were all in shitty apartments. Come on, this <laughs> this was that time of life. But but um, I just remember something Did, was was there either was there was there a mouse or was there uh, probably uh, it was something like that. You know, who cares? We were 20 nothing years old. <laughs> Anyway, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course. But I, I'm, 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 I'm glad that uh, as much as I love you and miss you, I'm, I don't get to see you in person enough. So I'm happy to, happy to see you on the Zoom and have the voice on the podcast. Well, thank you, and thank you for doing this. Um, like you said, so we met uh, when you were doing your MFA in musical theater at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, a program that no longer exists, much to my dismay. I was getting my BFA in musical theater. And the way that those two programs aligned, the two years that you were doing your MFA, you were in pretty much all of the BFA program and then had a bunch of other things to do. And um, like you said, uh, became fast friends. I, I think of watching college basketball. I think of, uh, I mean, yes, definitely video games. We we may have, with two of our other friends, developed a concept for a raunchy R-rated uh, movie on the way home from seeing American Pie in the <laughs> movie theater. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, there are some definitely some happy memories, and and it's kind of a perfect segue because you know the focus of the of carefully taught is musical theater education. And I run a BFA musical theater program. Kikau, my co-host, is the dean at a uh, a school that where he also teaches in a BFA musical theater program. And and there seems to be this common accepted route to Broadway, even though there is no route to Broadway, uh, this BFA musical theater route. But one of the things that Kikau and I have talked about is that that that's not the only way. Uh, some people don't need to go to college. They can just move to New York. Some people go the BA route. Some people get a degree in something else uh, and then shift to musical theater. That's kind of what you did, but you went about it a little bit differently. Do you what could you talk about your undergraduate experience then into your graduate degree? Because it, it's a little bit different than anybody else that we've spoken to. I would love to talk more about myself. Um <laughs> I love talking about myself. Yes. Uh well it all it all built to one thing. Matthew. Can I call you T? What do people call you on the podcast? They usually call me Maddie, but you can certainly call me T, because that is that is what you typically will call me uh if you are not if you're not using profanity. <laughs> <laughs> um I, I I just wanted to get to this 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 uh this next revelation for your for your for your listeners, which is uh I was I was pre-med undergrad at Duke University. I, I was a music major. To answer your question, they they gave me a scholarship to uh, to help uh, uh, start the opera department there. It was a classical based training. It was my first ever voice teacher. I had an unbelievable choir teacher in high school and sang in all the choirs and did the musicals and stuff. Um, but I never really had private voice lessons until I got to college. But I had to major in music, um, and uh, none of that really matters uh, except to say that as I started to dream of a career as an actor on Broadway, I could have never contemplated wearing tights with Maddie Teague Miller 
in a ballet class for yes. uh, six months where yeah. uh, you and I were um, uh, listeners, black tights, white T-shirts, uh, the black ballet shoes, not the not not point shoes, <laughs> uh, but, you know, ballet slippers, I think is what you call them. Yeah. Dance belts. Oh, yeah. You can tell your listeners what that is. I, I won't cross that line. Um, and and we uh, we had to choreograph and perform our own pas de deux, you and I. Yep. You for the had, final. Yeah, for the final. Right. For the final. Um, and you had the ingenious idea that we should do a ballet of Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, and so I do you remember what piece of music from John? Oh, Warner? yeah. It was the the big uh, the big uh, song at the end when the in 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 the original Star Wars film, it's the moment when Luke and Han are getting like their medals from Leia. Yeah, okay. it's from, it's there like into the into the credits a little bit. That that was the section of music that we choreographed our uh, pas de deux together. Yeah, pas de deux. Were there any lifts? Did I lift you? Did oh, you, lift you definitely me? lifted me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, folks, wow. uh, and that's how you got to Broadway. That was exactly how I got to. That's how I got to Broadway, and how I got to a meniscal tear repair surgery with <laughs> the best orthopedic surgeon in Cincinnati. Um, that's that's true. Uh, no, so so I I I finished college, and I wanted to go to medical school, and at the same time, I really wanted to be an actor, and I I really didn't know what to do. My professors at school told me I should be an actor, but my whole life, really, since I had been you know, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, I wanted to be a doctor. I'd shadowed doctors in high school. Like I really did want to be a doctor. So I didn't know what to do. So I thought, well, if I take the MCAT, the medical college admissions test, and I, I do well, then I'll go to medical school and I'll apply to graduate school for musical theater because I have no uh, real training. I have some voice lessons, but I have no acting training. I had, I had, I think one acting class at Duke and I had, performed a lot but i i thought if i moved to new york i'm just gonna i'm just gonna get eaten alive by people that really know what they're doing so i found cincinnati as you said they 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 had a two-year mfa program it no longer exists um which is sad because it was perfect for me I, it's exactly what i needed you know a guy coming out of college who wants some training at a, at a top training program with some of the best students and teachers in this art form in the world. And at the same time, um, we got to perform a lot at Cincinnati in these productions that had Broadway costumes and unbelievable sets and unbelievable makeup. Um, I mean, really Broadway caliber training, like, and, and also a showcase, right? Where the school provides that showcase. We all spent nine months putting that senior showcase together and got to go to New York and perform it in an off Broadway theater for agents and critics. And I mean, it was, it was everything that I thought, well, if I'm going to be a professional actor, this is the program because I'll know pretty quick whether I'm any good. I'll be able to sort of see how I compare to these other students that are there. I'll know whether the teachers think I'm any good and they must know what they're talking about. And then I'll know whether uh, I can get an agent or not at this showcase or whatever. And the MCATs were good for three years. So my parents bought it because... It gave me two years to go to Cincinnati and one year to move to New York and see if I could give it a shot. And that's what I did. Well, and you so you did the showcase and you had success pretty quickly. Well, first of all, I mean, 
if I remember correctly, you the summer between the two years at Cincinnati, you spent at Pittsburgh CLO. Is that right? Did I get that right? Isn't that when you did West Side out there? No, did uh, I make it? Are correct. I, I I had a very important role in a production of West Side Story at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. Uh, I played I played the, the the Puerto Rican character named Moose. Amazing. Oh no, excuse me. That is not true. Tony Yazbek, who another CCMer. Yeah. Uh, Broadway's great. Tony, Tony the Tony. Is uh, did he win the Tony? I know he's been no, nominated. He's nominated. He's nominated. Uh, yeah. Tony the Tony nominated actor. So Tony and I. Uh, we're at CLO that summer, and he was Moose, the Puerto Rican, and I was Nibbles, the Puerto Rican uh, gang member. Um, and and no, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you breaking out your musical theater anthologies um, or looking on PeterFelicia.com, there there is no character named Nibbles in West Side Story. But Barry Ivan, the director, really liked me, and I really wanted to be in West Side Story. So he created a gang member, and I guess Nibbles was the best that they could come up with. Amazing. So you, so the point, my point was, you were performing at a pretty major regional theater right out of the gate. Oh, before I, you... oh no, I was playing a lot of chess backstage in a in a. Tony and I played a lot of chess. I was not in any of those. That, no, I, I'm, I, I, I'm half kidding. I we I was in, I think three shows at pclo that summer and west side was kind of like they just threw me into that one i had more to do in grand hotel uh and bye bye birdie oh it was birdie uh, so i got my equity card that summer got it was three shows there yeah but yeah like you're saying i mean a a, a major lord whatever yeah major lord. i mean major major company and then and then you graduated you signed with an agency um, and if I'm not mistaken and correct me again, if I'm wrong, but then like the first big production contract that you got out of school when it wasn't that long there after graduation was the, the national tour of the Scarlet Pimpernel. Wasn't that the big one? Yeah. That's, okay. that's, and, and then you pretty much, you know, I mean, I know it probably doesn't feel this way, but from an outsider's perspective, went through, you know, a, a series of big Broadway, uh, uh, credits and, and experiences the the phantom was uh you you know the raul cover and the the famous story of everybody wearing the t-shirt with your face on it isn't that what it was it was a yeah um so like uh so i, I as i'm trying to transition into this this conversation about the state of the industry i'm, I'm curious you you did you had a music degree that was pre-med focused you got your mfa um it was exactly what you were saying that you needed as the springboard into your career in those early days of your career, what were the things that you learned in your education that proved valuable to you, that helped you, uh, that you actually used once you were working? That's a great question. Uh, I, ha I, no I don't know that I've ever been asked that question or thought about specifically what did I learn that I used? Um, I mean, I learned so much because I knew so little. I, all I had was sort of my instincts and whatever natural talent God gave me that I had, you know, explored in high school, doing musicals in high school and a show or two in college. Um, I, I had, I, 
I had really good musicianship skills. I learned that starting in high school, like how to sort of sight read music and um, be a part of, you know, when you're part of a choir and a men's acapella group and a chamber choir, um, you learn that it's not just about you and you learn obviously how to harmonize with them. So I just became a good musician. Um, and when you're in a Broadway show or in a regional theater show and you're learning music, you know, you spend the first week or two of rehearsal just working on the score. So I felt super prepared to do that. Um, I guess at CCM, it was more about trying to figure out how to be a Broadway level talent. Like, what does that mean when you go to New York? Like, what? how, how are you ready for these auditions? What's your audition book like? How do you carry yourself when you walk into the room? Um you know, CCM was kind of like throwing me into the deep end of musical theater and just learning how to swim because it was fast, right? It was two years. I mean, it was really fast. And I, I came from a very academic learning style my whole life. I, I was a sort of a brain about learning and acting. You can't really learn in the brain. You have to do it. Like I remember I was like called out by Aubrey Berg, the head of the program at the time because I was highlighting my Stanislavski book and raising my hand, asking questions. And he's like, don't worry about it. You're just, you're overthinking it. We're going to do it. Like we're going to do it. And I was like, well, I need to understand it before I do it. You know, I was very like all in the mind, which has been a theme throughout my life, actually. Um, so I learned so much. One of the, I think, if I had to pick one thing, the song log is probably the most important thing. I've used that my entire career, which is you take a song and you split it up and you tell a story like a monologue throughout the song. And that is sort of how I approached auditioning, whether I had a song log or just straight up music. And that's how I approached how I have approached cabarets and my solo concerts for the last 15 years. How do you tell a story through song and the acting of song? Um, and when I teach actors now i teach song interpretation um which i think is you know what musical theater is all about um so i don't know i, I feel like i learned so much that it's it, it's hard to pick one thing but that that was one of the things so as you as you have been a mainstay in the Broadway community and, and really had this, this lasting career, 11, is it, did I say it right? Is it 11 Broadway credits? Um, I don't know if you're allowed to count national tours or not. Ah, okay. I, don't, I, I think Kate Baldwin and I do a show together and we, she introduces me and I introduce her and we make a joke about it. And she's like, you know, I've, she plays, she pretends she's me. And she's like, I've done 10 Broadway shows. And I'm like, 11. And she's like, 11 Broadway shows. And, and then one time I was like, Kate called me out. She's like, I counted, you didn't do 11. I was like, it's national tours. Also, I did two national tours. She's like, you're not allowed to count those. <laughs> I'm like, they're Broadway national tours. The first national tour of Pimpernel and the first national tour of Dear Evan Hansen. But if you don't want to count those, then it's, it's nine or 10. I don't know. <laughs> okay, but it spanned. I mean, we graduated in like 2000, man. It was 2001. I mean, it was 2000, right? Yeah. That was, a, that was a long time ago. As you have watched the industry shift, what have you noticed about, um, I mean, that's, 
so many young musical theater BFA graduates that you have watched come onto the scene and have a career. How have things shifted or what has changed during that, that span of your, your Broadway, for lack of a better word, legacy? I, I should be asking you that in a way, right? Because you're, you're every year you're teaching the next generation of Broadway. You know, I, I remember being in the national tour of, of, of Evan Hansen in 2018, 2019. And which you were great in, by the way. Thank you, man. Yeah. Breaking glove. <laughs> uh, and I, I, the cast was, you know, I think there were three, three, three adults. And then the folks who covered us so maybe six or seven adults in the cast and then you you probably had 20 or more um young actors right ranging from like 16 or 17 to 28 and i just remember going into that experience really excited to be sort of the guy that other people were to me when i was their age right mm -hmm. like when i was at pittsburgh civic light opera i was taking ed lindeck out to lunch of course he was taking me out to lunch and we were at Wendy's, by the way. <laughs> and for uh, Tracy, do you listen to the uh, Smartless podcast? With uh, oh yeah, yeah. So you know they always talk about Sean's sister Tracy. So for all the Maddie Teague Miller, uh, got to be taught carefully taught podcast listeners. For all the Tracys out there who who don't know who Ed Lindeck is, so the original Judge Turpin and Sweeney Todd, and just like a hero of mine. Um, and so I wanted to be that to these kids, and I thought, oh, you know. Well, I'm at that point now where these kids can ask me all these questions and I can help them. Whatever. They couldn't care less. <laughs> they could not have cared less. They did their own thing. They had their own worlds. It was real tough having, you know, connecting with most of them. I felt like it, you know, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I understand what that generation mm. of actors, is going through in the yeah. business because so much has changed. I'm sure so much has changed. Um, and yet, you, you know, so like, I don't know, because to me, the business kind of, when you get to that point in this business where the industry knows who you are, uh, you, you, you've, you've earned sort of your place in the casting world, as far as them thinking of you for things, how you audition for things, you know, Unless you're doing something for people you haven't met, um, and there's often, you know, those times, um, you're not in like a a new experience. So I don't know what young people leaving your school, walking into New York, getting that survival job and starting to audition. I don't know what that world is. Mm -hmm. I, I would be on a at a roundtable conversation with you and a couple of your students. You know what I mean? Just talking about because I feel like I'd love to be educated on on what that world what that world is. Um, I know that doesn't help anybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's OK. Uh, we're just we're, we're just uh, breaking ice anyway uh, before we get into some more meaty stuff. I am interested, however, you know, with with a career like yours, um, you know, and with most of our listeners being musical theater teachers, 
Um, if, if there's anything you can tell them and me about what people really need to know when they are in New York or Chicago or wherever they decide to move and they're, 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 they're working actors, what, what are some things that we can do to prepare our students for, you know, the things that maybe we're not thinking of, you know, we, we do the song log exercises and interpreting songs. That's not, you know, that's, there's a thousand ways to, to go about that. There's a thousand acting techniques, you know, and there's not necessarily one right way to do any of those things, but like, you know, what is it that, um, through your career, you have seen uh, as a valuable to as a valuable tool that we could be maybe implementing that we're not thinking about. Great question. Um, I, I just I only know what my experience was. Right, it, it was just about passion. You know, my passion for this was for the longest time, and. I've rediscovered that again and gratefully so, but, but it was my life. I mean, I was that nerd listening to every cast album that there was and imagining me playing those parts and moving to New York and, and deifying, you know, the people that I grew up as, you know, the Sondheims and the Hal Prince and the Comden and Greens and the, and I mean, like, I just wrote about this on Facebook recently because I watched Maestro about Bernstein, which, by the mm. way, I think virtuosic filmmaking and, and acting um, in, in so many, many ways. But it was New York and it was Tanglewood. It was all these places where I've performed. Like I never got to meet Bernstein, but I've performed his works and I've performed with some of the people in the film, the characters in the film. And I remembered very acutely the level of artistry that I aspired to. So... I guess that's me saying that, you know, authenticity with your students of like, what are they passionate about, about mm -hmm. this business and helping them own that. Um, and, and, and really um, love themselves for that and not, not let anybody take that away. Mm. Um, the, you know, the, the subjectivity of people's opinions about whether you're any good um, broke me in so many ways, you know, the, the chronic sort of rejection of the business and how I, how I devalued myself um, because of the repeated sort of, no, the job went to somebody else, somebody else, even though as, as you know, as you're saying, I mean, I, I, I've had a fantastic career Um but for every job that you talked about, there were 200 jobs that I did not get. Yeah. Um, and, you know, considered lucky in the business to even have those opportunities to get those jobs. Right. Um, so anyway, um, if you can know yourself, because I really didn't know who I was as an actor or whatever, I, I kind of wanted to lose myself in characters. Hmm on a play myself, like creating my first cabaret was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. Cause it was just me being me. And I was like, I don't even know how to do that because I don't, when I play full, I mean, even in grad school, I mean, we did La Mancha together. We did Cyrano together. Like I, I didn't sing as me. I sang as those characters. And I loved doing that. I loved creating a voice 
for a character and losing myself in that world. Um, so knowing who you are, what you love and what your passion is for it and holding on to that and, and then honing that, you know, craft. Like I believe in the Kobe Bryant of it all, the Michael Jordan of it. Like I believe in getting as good at something as you possibly can, but not at the expense of, um, you know, losing yourself when, when adversity comes up, when challenges come up. Does that make sense? It does. It's really interesting to hear. I've never heard you talk about um, the rejection and, I've also never heard you talk about the the enjoyment of losing yourself in a character because one of the things, and I've told you this before, but one of the things that has always been impressive to me, and I, I, I actually use you as a role model at times, and this goes all the way back to when we were in school together, is just how comfortable you seem in your own skin all the time. Yes. Like, it, like, I don't know how you do it. I've never, I didn't see you work with Martin Scorsese, but like you've told me stories about working with Martin Scorsese and, and these incredibly powerful people. And you've always, even in those situations, it's felt to me from my vantage point, knowing you as I do, that you are just you and you're so comfortable in your own skin. I don't, I don't know how you you do that. And it's so it's especially interesting for me to hear you talk about how difficult it was to for you to 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 be comfortable in your own skin on stage, um, because socially backstage in 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 interactions, I've watched you, you know, navigate some pretty challenging situations from time to time. And you, you're just always you. And I just something that I love so much about you and, and I'm always so impressed about as one of the things I wanted to ask you is how you do that. Um, but. So it's interesting to hear you say, well, it wasn't always so easy on, 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 when I was performing to, to bring that. No, I, I think, I mean, it was, it was rarely easy. I, I, w I wish it was easy. And I think I made it harder. Um, you know, I think I, I think I had some, I think I had some idea you know, I was talking about this with a friend recently, just about, you know, this person said to me, I, I only learn when things are really hard. I only learn like going through pain and suffering or something. And I just thought, I thought, well, I, I understand. I mean, especially with what I've been going through for the last couple of years. And I think that's bullshit, man. Like, I just think it's, whether it's a false idea of what it means to be a man and a husband and a provider and a father um, whether it was a false idea on my part of how hard I thought I needed to work in order to be good and great. Um, the, the problem with show business, right, is that this is not basketball. So it is not, you know, you get out there and you master a skill and then you put that skill on the court and you either win or lose games. Mm -hmm. Right. This is you master a skill and somebody decides whether you get to, to get out there on the court or not. And you can get out there on the court and do a show and then be unemployed for two years. 
And so in that, in that time you're going, well, if I was really Kobe Bryant at this, I'd be making a zillion dollars and I'd be playing all the time. <laughs> so I guess I'm not Kobe Bryant. And as soon as that thought starts to trickle in, right, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not a star. As soon as, as soon as you go to an audition and have a major director be like, I know you think that was really good, but I, we don't think so. You know, as soon as, <laughs> as, as soon as people say things to you that when you're 25, 26, 27, or 10 years later, somebody's saying that and you've got two little kids and a mortgage, you know, as soon as you're hearing those things, in my mind, it was either I am, you know, mega star, Broadway star level, like the Chenoweth, the Dina Menzel's of the world either i'm doing those shows where you know i don't know what these those ladies made in wicked but they were rumored to be making like twenty thousand dollars a week or something right and i'm just throwing that number out there but it was a lot it was like that either you're making that kind of money or you're on the broadway struggle bus with everybody else because even if you're making even if you're a lead in a broadway show sometimes those shows after you pay your agents and your reps and you pay taxes you're not making what eighty thousand dollars a year i mean i don't know what people the impression is of what people make but to live in new york city with children on eighty thousand dollars a year whatever it, you can't you can't do it and you can't save for a future and you can't save for kids school and you can't save for vacations and all of that was like my angst because i thought i know i'm really good at this and and i've had so much success but stringing that success together and building that up to the thing you know which becomes the well if broadway isn't going to pay me you know then i got to go do tv and film and then there's all that pressure of trying to break into that world um so yeah no it was never it was never easy and even when it when it when it was Les Mis was a, so fun you know and I knew I was great in that show um so I was able to just be and have a great time but again like Les Mis was one of the lowest paying jobs I ever had on Broadway I had to, I had to leave the show because when they wanted to extend my contract they wouldn't pay me more and it wasn't like I don't know, you know, you know me, your listeners have no idea who I am, but <laughs> you know me like I am not like a diva kind of guy trying to ask. For, I wasn't asking for $20,000 a week or $10,000 a week in Les Mis. Like you're just trying to make some money so that you're not living paycheck to paycheck is really right. the reason. And it's also not like, you know, I was living some lavish lifestyle. I mean, that's just the reality of what Broadway is. You, The jobs don't last very long. And the money is always tight. And I don't think I ever expected that. And when adversity really hit, I didn't really have the tools for how to deal with it other than to work harder and put more pressure on myself to somehow do more and mm -hmm. be provide more for my family. And if I wasn't able to do that, I started to take on this, this devaluing of myself, which became uh, really, really... Um, uh, I mean, I think, I think it ultimately led to this disease that I'm dealing with now. Um, so 
I will say that for as long as I've known you and as comfortable as you are, seem to be in your own skin, you've also, from the day that I met you, put an incredible amount of pressure on yourself. That, I mean, yeah. I've, yes, I will say that as a, as a friend of yours, I've watched that. It's one of the things that has driven you to be successful and to be great, but I, I know that it's led to some other things too. So let's let's talk about that. So the, you you said uh, you just referenced disease. You just uh, you mentioned that the last couple of years have been particularly challenging. Um, let's talk about that. How do you want to roll this out? <laughs> I don't want to roll it out. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I I was diagnosed uh, almost two years ago with ALS, which is you know Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, it's a terminal disease that you know, kills your nerves and takes your freedom before it takes your life kind of thing. Um, and um, I've been dealing with the symptoms of that for even longer. It took, took about eight months of, you know, the terror of symptoms, muscle twitches and, and some muscle weakness and muscle atrophy to start to understand, you know, understanding what the hell was going on. Um, and, I'm now at a place where I've, I mean, I've seen it from the beginning as like a divine opportunity disguised as a, an impossible situation. Um, doctors and medicine don't know what causes non-genetic ALS. Uh, there's literally quote, no, no. Um, what's the quote from the article that I read recently? There's, there's no, there's no uh, reason for its development. Um, if, if it's not, if there's no gene associated with it. So, um, I've just been on a journey to try and understand how I got it and how I can fix myself. Right. It's like my body, it's my nervous system. What did I do to it and how did I fix it? So if I sound acutely aware of all of these different parts of my life and, and, um, able to speak about them sort of in, in strange granular detail it's because this is what i've been doing for the last two years it's been this journey to understand myself and the choices that i've made um to understand how to heal myself so you um thank you for sharing that so you uh two years ago received this diagnosis and um is that right two years yeah, about. And um, you were dealing with the symptoms for a while. And um, you said this, you you found this as a d divine opportunity. What, t um, what is that? Tell me, tell me, tell me, you said it's terminal. What, um, so what, what do you, what do you do with it, with this situation? Well, I don't believe it's terminal, right? So I believe um, I'm going to beat it. And that in my journey to, of believing that I've actually realized there's, that's not even really the way I would phrase it, right? There's nothing to beat. It's not a competition. I'm going to heal. And I've realized in healing, it's not just healing my body, which I thought if you're a healthy body, you're healthy. You know, like health to me was physical. It was always physical. I was always an athlete. Um, I was an athlete in high school. I was an athlete in college. I'd been working out and in gyms and my since I was 13, my dad got me Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia of Modern Bodybuilding, and that was the idea of, of physical health and strength. My survival job in New York 
after grad school was being a personal trainer. Like that's, that's been a huge part of my life. Um, and then my mom cured cancer with nutrition. And so nutrition became a thing about 20 years ago for us, where it wasn't just about how much you exercise. It was about what you're actually putting into your body. And so I thought, well, I'm exercising and I'm putting the healthiest foods and supplements into my body and I never get sick. So however stressful life gets, it's okay because I'll be healthy, which was also a really neurotic thing for me from a younger age as a performer, because as I started playing leads and shows in high school, it was like, well, you can't go skiing because you might break a leg and you got to do that show. And then in college and in grad school, it's like, well, you can't drink and you don't want to smoke that thing because you got that voice recital on the thing and the thing and the thing. And I just really controlled all of that. Yeah. Right. I remember doing La Mancha in at CCM uh, because I was just back to Cincinnati. They gave me this beautiful alumni award. And um, Julie Spangler and I went to Graders. Yes. And I remember going to Graders after opening night of La Mancha and I couldn't talk to anybody. I had had this huge success. One of the most memorable, you know, cathartic performances of my life that, that really was me living my impossible dream of wanting to become an actor. Like that was coming true. I knew I, in, in that show, I knew finally I'm really good at this, you know? Um, and I couldn't even celebrate this shit cause I couldn't talk to anybody because I was like, well, you've got two shows tomorrow and you're eating ice cream anyway. And like, I just, I was so, um, disciplined about it, but neurotic. I mean, it was too, it was too much. It was too much. Um, so, uh, what was I talking about? Well, you're talking about, um, <laughs> you don't remember. Well, I, okay. I was thinking about what I wanted to ask you next, because <laughs> you're, you're talking about how, um, how hard you were in yourself, how, how, how stressed you were, um, and you dealt with some, some other challenging things in your personal life there for a while. And, and I've heard you say that a lot, you feel like that contributed to your now health situation. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, as I first started to, to go on this healing journey of like, well, how am I going to fix my nervous system? Like, how am I going to heal from ALS? You know, there's like 60 people in the world that have, that they've studied that have reversed ALS. I'm sure there's many more that have not been studied. Um, but for the most part, doctors and medicine will tell you you're going to die. Um, and it's, it's this terrifying disease, right? Because your muscles just, your, your motor neurons degenerate and your muscles stop working and you're alive and awake and aware, but you're trapped, stuck in this, in your, in your body. Um, and as I started to understand myself like i just believe that the energy that made the body heals the body and i believe that the body always wants to heal itself and i just believe these things and i started to see health uh as more than physical it's mental it's emotional it's spiritual i started reading books on healing in the nervous system i've been doing that you know i probably read 60 books now um it's really become a passion of mine um and they all say the same thing, you know, health is not just physical, it's all these things. And so I started to just learn 
about the energy that I was running through my body. So yeah, I might've been successful by many people's, you know, perception in many people's eyes. Um, but mentally and emotionally, I was not well. I was living under constant chronic stress to be more um, and to somehow become this legend of Broadway in an industry that was like, well, here's a show and we'll pay you okay money. You'll be able to live while you're in the show. And then as soon as you're out of that show, you're out of money again. And you can try and have a family like good luck, you know? And I was like, that's not good enough for me. Cause I'm, I'm better than that. Right. I never, I, I, I thought I was better than that. And then it was like, well, am I? And then it's like, well, am I a failure? Like all of this shit, like all of these really uh, difficult thoughts about myself, trying to understand who I am and what I want. And really it just comes down to loving yourself. I only really loved myself if the show was the show, you know, oh, this show's great. This is a great part and there's great people in it. And I'm going to have a great opportunity here. And so I'm great. And then you leave the show and you're at home and what are you doing? What's next? I actually don't know. <coughs> or what's next? Well, actually I just got fired from this, this show giant you know, where they're moving it from Texas to, excuse me, off Broadway. And they told me I'm not the guy. Um, and I left my wife with a, uh, a barely two-year-old and a three-week-old to make no money doing regional theater because I knew I was the guy. And how could I have made that sacrifice and not get that shot? Like all of this neurotic, neurotic stuff, man, that I just took so personally. And I do believe, as the Buddha said, that thoughts are things, that we create our world with our thoughts. And I had gotten myself into an emotional addiction around my career um, with my thinking about it that was just filled with doubt and fear. Um, and I just think that that's human and it's natural. And I don't know. I know there are people in the business that talk about it, but it's just real. It's just what it is, you know, that, um, and I, I think, I think that broke my nervous system in a way. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's my fault. I didn't do it intentionally. <clears throat> I'm not blaming myself, but if you're looking for causality, there's trauma, you know, there's chronic, chronic low grade trauma in my career. And then there was some pretty intense personal trauma in my in my marriage when I went through a, a horrifying divorce um, with little kids and I just took it all so personally, man. Like I just am way more sensitive than I realized. I thought I was this leading man guy, you know, and I thought I was this physically, you know, strong guy and I could just take it all on. But really I did not have the tools and I know that now because now I have the tools. Like I've taught myself, I've changed myself. I've spent the last two years learning how to play the game of life better. So I don't want to get into recommendations yet because that would mean that we're close to being done and I'm not ready to being done. But like a previous question that I had asked you is what 
you know, what's missing in musical theater education. I don't think I asked it quite like that, but um, that was what I was inferring. Th this seems like something that's missing in musical theater education. And if this is something that a lot of uh, this cycle of trauma and harm that what people are doing to themselves that you did to yourself is, is something that's being perpetuated by, you know, our culture and our industry, Maybe there are some of these tools that we can incorporate into some of these musical theater programs to, to better prepare our our students for for happiness. And and you're saying that it all boils down to figuring out a way to to love yourself, or not figuring out a way, but just to simply love yourself. What what does that look like? Like how does one <laughs> from your experience what what does loving what is the journey of loving yourself look like? I mean, that's a beautiful question. I, I mean, I, I, I have a question for you, actually, though, right? Like, you know, I remember being at Cincinnati after our showcase. And we were 22 kids, I think, you know. And there were students in our class who got no interest from agents who had been in tap shoes since they were three years old. Now, at 18 or 19, to be like, okay, I chose something and I have to choose something else. I understand that that is painful and like whatever. It's a different story when you're 35 and have kids, right, to, to be in this place. But you're a, a, an interesting person to ask, right, because you had a career, you were successful, and then at some point you chose to pivot, right, and then to share your wisdom with the next generation of musical theater folks and teach them everything that, that you know and that you believe about the business you know was that challenging for you was that traumatic for you to leave acting behind like what was your mind set around that um no it wasn't for me but i teaching and directing were always part of my plan i mean you know, you were in the first thing I ever directed, which I wrote myself when we were in school because I wanted an excuse to to experiment with that process of of directing and 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 I come from a family of teachers. Both of my parents were career educators, and I knew that was something that um, that I wanted. I've had plenty of trauma in my life. Um, leaving performing was not one. I, I had set some goals for myself. Uh, from a career perspective. And I was lucky that those came pretty quickly for me. I was in the right place at the right time with the right show and all of those things. And then shifting to these other passions uh, was not hard. Um, now I've dealt with all kinds of loss in my life. I, I, I know what, what that trauma feels like. I mean, it's different for everybody, but I've, I've been through those things. I've, um, I, I lost a marriage like you did. I, 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 you know, have lost some really important people in my life. Um, but from a career perspective, uh, I've always just been able to follow, uh, my, my, my passion and my, my, uh, the things that I find inspiring and it's just taken me to where I've needed to go. I've been really lucky in that way. But again, for me, unlike some people, teaching was never like a fallback. You know, there are a lot of people that teach because they didn't have um, 
the success or they weren't meeting the the stability goals that they had for themselves. For me, that was never the case. I, I always knew I was going to direct. I always knew at some point I was going to teach, even when we were 22 years old and showcasing and signing with prestigious agencies in New York City. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think, and thanks for sharing. I mean, I think it's, everyone has trauma in their life whether it's connected to the career or it's personal or it's both or whatever it is. And I think I didn't have tools for that because I was a pretty blessed guy for most of my life. Yeah. So when I started to encounter that kind of thing, it, it didn't make sense to me because my out, my whole life was just, well, work harder and you'll get it. And I had right. always worked harder and gotten it. But when I kept working harder and wasn't getting it, mentally i just didn't know what to do or how to do it it was like well why are we even screwing with this anymore let's just go work for dad's construction business <laughs> and that didn't feel right like my soul was like no this is who you are and this is what you do but when your mind and your emotions and your, your, your when your heart and soul are like in conflict with one another, it's one of the most painful i mean i think that's where anxiety comes from i think that's you know part of anxiety and depression <clears throat> insomnia and mental health issues, you know, um, <clears throat> so loving yourself, self-love, you know, as, as, as pat as that may sound or as, as, um, cliche, um, it, it really is, it's, it's a big piece of, of the pie. And as far as how you do that, I think you start by asking yourself the question, and then it's different for everybody. I mean, I, I really had no, I, I had heard for years from a friend, you know, it's love or fear. Life is love or fear. Like, like all of these amazing spiritual philosophies. I've been a seeker for since right before my first son was born, which is almost 15 years ago now. And seeking is one thing and reading is one thing and having philosophy is one thing and, and having belief in philosophy is another thing, but you have to experience it until that's when the philosophy or the theory becomes proven to you as true or not. And what's true for me is different than what's true for you is different than what's true for it. Like we all have our own. And, and, and finding for yourself, what's true for you um, is, is what has been a, a big part of this journey for me. And, Loving myself. I mean, it, you know, there's a book called Healing by David Elliott, and the first two chapters are about self-love. I, I read them, um, not knowing that I was sort of posed the question, and that book came into my life. It was one of the, one of the, books early in my journey, and then two weeks later, I had this huge heart-opening experience, um, which I talk about in this talk now called The Impossible Dream that I put together to kind of talk about my story, but, <clears throat> um the questions are are more important to me than the than the drawing premature conclusions about things because <laughs> we really don't know anything but the question often inspires thoughts that are past you got to get past the logical brain particularly for people like me who have an answer for everything right i know this i did i can do this and it's just like this is the way you do life I really had to learn that, like, once you get past the logical brain, there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, I was a much more 
full feeling human being than that leading man guy that I was trying to be in this business. And if I wasn't at the pinnacle, I was going home to my wife and children a failure because I was not going to be able to provide for them what my debt, like just these stupid narratives that at the time did not feel stupid, man. They felt like the code of my life. Yeah. And I'm well, really great. That, that's the thing about trauma. And um, I mean, you, you, you talked about this being the source of a lot of people's anxiety. I, so you asked me a moment ago if I had suffered loss when I, or did I grieve my career when I shifted? And and I, I've never had that from a professional standpoint, but I definitely deal with that from a personal standpoint. Like I I deal with anxiety pretty pretty regularly in in a in a pretty profound and sometimes overwhelming way. But it's always it always centers around personal loss and isolation and disconnection from the people that I love. Um, a lot of it, you know, through my therapy, uh, you know, stems from the loss of my family and and a childhood divorce of my parents in a way that, you know, like from the time I I, I was seven when my parents got divorced, I've always been afraid of losing of losing my connection with other people. And so like, that's where my anxiety stems from. It's, I've been lucky in that my career is, has sort of just, even when my I've dealt with career loss, uh, it's, it's always sort of fell into place, but my anxiety and my desire to, my need to control things typically centers around, um, the fear of losing people, mm. um, which is inevitable <laughs> because, you know, uh, every, everybody is on, on the clock, so to speak. Um, but, uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's really, it's interesting to hear you, you talk about these things. So you, you mentioned this talk that you do now, um, this, the, the impossible dream. Um, can you, can you tell us a little bit more about what that is and, and, and maybe how people would be able to, to see it or, or hear it, um, well, first of all, what is it? Yeah, I, you know, I hadn't told my kids about the diagnosis. Um, I told them a few months ago. So it, it had been more than a, a year and a half um, of just trying to do my work to heal and not wanting to put them in a position, you know, they're children of divorce and been through a lot. And I just didn't want them to have that stress. Um, but around this past April, Kate and I were doing our concert all for you in, in the city at 54 below. Um, and we needed, I was like, I don't want to sing, uh, Il Mondo from Piazza. That, that is too high. It's too hard. <laughs> the year before, because I wanted to, I was like, I want to sing that song again. I want to get my voice back to that place. But the disease had kind of started to move into my core a little bit. It was harder to rehearse. And the song is really hard. And standing for very long at that point was starting to come. It was just it was just too hard of a song. Like part of this whole thing that I've learned through this experience is like things don't need to be as hard as I used to want them to be to yeah. get some some sense of really look what I accomplished because look how hard that was. It's like, how about, man, wasn't that fun because it was so fucking easy? 
<laughs> you know? Like, why can't we take that path? Um, so anyway, I, I needed to replace that song. And I said, Kate, why don't I just do the impossible dream? I haven't sung it since grad school. I played Don Quixote in grad school. It was a great song. So we sang the song, beautiful Josh Groban arrangement. And as I was singing the song in front of these nice audiences at 54 Below, I was like, oh. I was like, oh my God, the lyrics to this song are like my life right now. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I couldn't then get that song and that, you know, the impossible dream out of my, out of my consciousness. And I was starting to really, as I talked to friends, just the way we're talking now, people, I guess, started to want to hear what I had to say about life. Cause I had spent, I spent a lot of time putting it into perspective and trying to understand it. And so I was like, well, how do I help people? And maybe it's what I'm, maybe it's part of my purpose now. You know, I, I didn't know what to do with it, reading all these books. And so I thought, well, what am I going to be a life coach or a, write a book? Like, I just didn't know. And over the summer, it became like a TED talk called The Impossible Dream. And um, I have uh, two of my best friends, um, a guy named Mike Bogner and Ben Tischler, um, entertainment attorney and producer uh, and a screenwriter uh, and producer. They were like, well, we want to help you. We'll help you do something with this. I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do with it. And Boggs set up um, just like a parlor talk at someone's house um one of our one of our friends homes in la and he god bless him invited a bunch of people and i got to tell my story um and then we spoke to another friend of ours who runs a neurotech company out of san diego and is a big fan of the theater and um a big supporter of mine and he said well you guys should come down to san diego i've got 30 of the top neurosurgeons in the country who might want to hear this. So we went down there and we, we did it down there. And the talk started to, I was able to refine it. I mean, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, really. I mean, writing a story about your healing while you're going through it. Um, and not preaching or teaching anything, just telling my story and hoping that people can find something in it for themselves as they just listen. Um, and so the impossible dream, the song is woven throughout it, acapella. And uh, it's this setup that my original impossible dream was to be an actor. And I had no idea what impossible really meant until ALS. And now my impossible dream is to beat it. And just daring to dream that has transformed my life. Um, so, hoping now we've started to book the talk as you know a sort of motivational inspirational kind of impactful talk presentation i don't know what you call it it's 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 almost artful in a way because people get to take from it what they want i'm not showing up like tony robbins or somebody going here are the top three things that you should do in order to fix yourself it's kind of just like here's what i've learned and here's what's working for me and here are the questions I still have and it inspires people to just take a deeper look at themselves. Um, and, uh, we're, we're, you know, I'm, I'm doing that starting in, in the new year.
So if, you know, with with our, our listeners being primarily musical theater educators around the country, if they were interested in you presenting this talk at their program, how would they go about getting something like that lined up? Oh, thanks, man. Um, yeah, you should reach out to Boggs. Um, <laughs> uh, he's uh, he's in charge of all things. No, we're we're as we speak, putting together like a landing page for it on my website, but it's not up yet. Okay. Um, be like a sizzle there, but um, you can reach out to me on Instagram and message me um, and I'll connect you with, with Michael Bogner, who everyone calls Boggs. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities. It becomes sort of healing for me as, as much as it's healing for the people who get to, who get to hear it. I mean, you got to watch it. I sent you the link from uh, of a presentation down at my alma mater at Duke. I mean, what did you think? I thought it was beautiful. I mean, I want everybody to. I want everybody to see it. And um, yeah, like like uh, you know, the twenty five years that I've known you, it's um, you are authentically you, and um, really bring your heart to, to the project. So yeah, I want all of our listeners to get a chance to bring you to their campus and uh, have you, have you present it to their students. And I need to figure out a way to get you up here at Chico too, which shouldn't be that difficult, except that state dollars are a little bit challenging to manipulate. <laughs> well, now that I'm like a disabled guy, will that help? I mean, can, you, <laughs> can you get the, like the, the diversity? <laughs> Inclusion, the dis disability, the state's got to have money for that, right? Otherwise, they look real bad. The state of California looks real bad if the guy with ALS can't come up and talk to the kids. Okay. You know? I uh, I hadn't considered <laughs> playing that card. Um, maybe I maybe I maybe I will. Um, so we end every episode with our guests with uh, by asking them if they have any recommendations for our listeners, things that. Um, could be anything from your you what band you're listening to right now to a book to uh, another podcast. I mean, it could be anything. Um, so I gave you the heads up. Uh, you said you came with a full bibliography. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what what are you what are some of your recommendations for our uh, our listeners? Well, it's um, it's I love I love I love the way uh, you end the show here. Um, so I'm doing this concert honoring Stephen Flaherty in a couple of weeks in New York. And um, Ashley Brown is singing in it. And she's a CCMer. Yeah. She sings a song of his called Streets of Dublin that I just think is off the hook. And if you're if you guys get a chance to hear that, I don't know if it's on YouTube anywhere. I don't know if you can find it. If you can't, and I've now just sent you all on a wild goose chase. I apologize. <laughs> um let me know that and I'll post a video of it. Um, so that's beautiful. There's a book that I'm reading right now, which is, uh, which is really cool. It's called the life and teachings of the masters of the far East. And it's, it's about an American explorer who lived in Tibet and in India at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, not the 21st century. Um, and encountered some people who claimed to be like 500 years old and then decided Mm, are you guys for real? I want to live with you for a couple of years. So, so these American explorers lived with these people and sort of learned 
the mystical magic secrets of life. Um, and it's all supposedly a true story. Like this is not, uh, this is not fiction, but nobody knows the book's 140 years old or something at this point. Um, so that would be my reading. What was it called again? What was it called? Teachings of the masters of the far East. Uh, it's very cool. Um, and, uh, No, I think I would just leave everybody with, like, if I had a podcast, I would want to talk about what your impossible dreams are, mm. you know, how, how living them, um, even, even trying, daring to dream them, how, how that has shaped who you are, you know? So you I, should, you should have that podcast. That's a great podcast. Let's do it. I, I don't, I don't do a podcast. <laughs> Love to do that podcast. I'm going to do that. Podcast. Great. Okay. Um, well, Laz, it's uh, it's amazing to have an excuse to look you through the Zoom face to face for an hour plus, and you are an absolute hero of mine. I just adore you. I so appreciate you and everything that you bring to my life regularly and now to this podcast as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you for carving out time while you're on vacation, uh, to be yeah. on carefully taught teaching musical theater with Maddie and Kikau. I love you, man. Thank you for having me and happy new year to you and your beautiful family and everybody. This is my quest to follow that star No matter how hopeless No matter how far To fight for the right Without question or pause To be willing to march into hell For a heavenly cause I'm late to my rest.